okay, today we're joined by Doug Garner, who is uh, at Gold Leaf Team Lotus. Morning, Doug. Hello, uh, Gary. Sorry, <laughs> I called you <laughs> Phil then. Sorry, Gary. Yeah. It's news, Phil. Um, <laughs> so how did you get started in motoring rather than racing to start with? Did you, do, did you start sort of straight from school or, or college? Yes, I wanted to. Uh, yes, I was at school. I went to a secondary modern school um, uh, in Enfield. And um, I decided that I wanted to be with cars. I mean, I'd always been interested in mechanical things. Uh, and I think that's, that's the background for most people who end up in car, with cars. Uh, he was managing director of a building company in, in Enfield. And he said, oh, he knew of a garage. So he got me into a garage to start with as soon as I left school. Unfortunately, it was bodywork. It wasn't anything to do with mechanical side at all. Uh, he didn't realise that. Turned full circle. I'm now in Lincolnshire, which is where actually the um, a lot of the cranes were manufactured uh, in those days. Um, right. So we. So then. Um, so I finished my. I did my apprenticeship with them. While I was there, a guy who was an electrician said to me, "You know, if you want a proper apprenticeship, you should get involved with the Metropolitan Police because they do a really good apprenticeship scheme." Oh, okay. I have a crack at that. So I, we we don't actually do apprenticeships at the moment. We do apprenticeship scheme, and I was the number one of the new apprenticeship <laughs> scheme since the war. Then, and uh, part of the deal was I. And I, I didn't get on that well at school. I wasn't very keen on, on that kind of side of things. So, but they insisted that I went to college. So I had to do five years uh, sitting and stuff like that, which when I did, they promised me instant promotion. <laughs> but yeah. after, after five years, um, I did that. And I came, uh, I went into the office. I had a fantastic manager. He was a really nice guy, really good guy. And I said to him, Cyril, you know, can you, can I be made up now? You know, and it was it was actually it wasn't a big step. It was from apprentice to full time mechanic. Right. And he said, yes, yeah. he said you're obviously fully qualified, but unfortunately we haven't got a place for you. Oh. So you, you you know we might have in a year or two's time. So that meant staying on as an apprentice for another couple of years, which obviously when you're that age you're itching to get on, aren't you? So I thought, well. So I took a day off and I put my sitting guilds under my arm and walked around all the local garages. Um, at college, there were a couple of guys there that actually worked at local guild certificate. They said, start tomorrow. So when I got to Lothar, a moustachioed guy who obviously was ex-military, very smart-looking chap. And this, would I, be, this would be Lotus Cars. This so. was in Lotus, yes, this was at Lotus Cars. Uh, at Cheston, which was just down the road from where I lived. Yeah. So um, I had a word with this chap, and he said, well, just hang on a minute. He said, and he disappeared into the building, and he came down five minutes later and said, follow me. Well, Lotus in those days had been extended and extended and extended, you know, and it was a labyrinth of corridors and offices and all. So we went out, there were three guys sat behind a desk and a chair, it's like they were waiting for me. I couldn't believe it. You know? So I sat down there in the development section of Lotus, and they said, well, would you like to go into the development of cars, you know, on the development side? And I thought, of course, it's a bit of a I hadn't even thought about it, to be honest. So anyway, short, short story. Yes, I was, I was in then, and then I was put into the development workshop, and uh, I worked on the Europa, the Elan, and the uh, the S4 Elan, and the Plus Two, which was the the new the new unit coming through. 
Yeah. And we took that, the, the Plus 2, I worked on there for, a, a, I can't remember how long it was, about 18 months maybe, and then we went to Norfolk. Oh, right. still, yeah. still running, still running the, uh, developing the Plus 2, because now we would put it down a production line, we were ironing out production line gremlins, you know, which we'd never seen during our development side, but that, it was relevant to the guys getting used to making a car. Sure. So yeah. we kept on there for a bit and then one night um uh what was it it wasn't Derek Sleeth he was on the Europa mainly but um this I can't get the name of the guy now he came through and he said Doug he said uh we've got a car away being filmed it's had a problem it's damaged can you fix it can you stay on tonight it's arriving on a loader <laughs> yeah so this was about six o'clock at night so I said yeah okay so anyway this thing turned up at about eight o'clock and it was a plus two, and we got it off the trailer. It had been filming opening scenes from the Avengers with uh, right. driving it. Yeah, well, yeah. she wasn't driving it, but in the opening shots she was. And uh, what they'd done is they jumped it over a bridge a couple of times and uh, done some shots of that. And uh, on one of the occasions, the right-hand rear wheel had stayed up inside the wheel arch when they came down, so they decided it had gone wrong. So they brought, brought it back to the factory. Uh, it arrived, I was at about 8 o'clock at night, and they wanted to film the next day. So wow. the truck driver went to stay in, uh, in um, um, just down the road. Uh, I can't remember the place now. Um, anyway, he went and stayed overnight um, at a local hotel. And we, uh, I pulled the car off and started work on it. Well, it was a fairly simple fix, but it needed a, a bit of welding and a bracket putting on. But the problem was we'd only moved into the workshop. We had no, we had didn't have any ramps or lifts. We didn't have anything. It was like working in a hospital. It was absolutely clinical. The walls were white. The floor was grey. There was a bench and my toolbox. That was it, you know. So I jacked the thing up and I managed to work it up into the air so I could get the get the, the rear suspension. And when I got there. Um, I realised I was going to need to weld it. So I looked around. I, I borrowed a set of welding gear from somewhere. Or I went in, because this was, all the factory was all locked up now. So I had to go into another department and pinch a welding kit. I brought it back. And uh, unfortunately, all it had was a gas axe in the nozzle because it wasn't designed for welding. So I tried to weld underneath the car. There was only a foot off the ground. And uh, I wasn't having much luck. So much so, I don't know if you've ever done any gas welding, if you get the nozzle too hot, it pre-ignites the gas and fires it like a gun, you know. So, And this can happen quite rapidly. So you get this, bang, 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 you know, of the gun. Um, anyway, welding wasn't going well at all. <laughs> so I thought I smoked in those days. So I turned the gas axe off, stood up, I leaned on the top of the car, and I'm thinking to myself, now what do I do? So I had a cigarette. I'm sitting there, standing there thinking, and all of a sudden a voice behind me says, oh, we're having trouble welding. <laughs> well, I thought I was the only guy in the factory, to be honest, except for security. Well, I nearly jumped over the car because this bloke behind me, is sort of, you know, it came out of nowhere. Because what had happened is he'd, he'd heard the noise and come through from next door, which was Team Lotus, which was next door. Oh, right, okay. And of course, he, he wondered what the hell was going on. He thought he was the only bloke in the factory as well. I mean, they were working their normal hours. And uh, anyway, we came through and Arthur said, uh, it's just uh, it's a guy called Arthur Birchall. 
turned into a good friend in the end. Um, he said, well, would you want me to have a go? So I said, oh, yeah. you know." <laughs> so, of course, he got underneath and with a gas axe, welded the thing up, did a perfectly good job. And we put it back on the low loader. And in the early days of Hethel, um, the local control, the control tower, which is an ex-military control tower that was there, had been turned into a pub, which was a great idea. One of the best ideas like was happening. Well, like a club. Yeah. So we went yeah. along to have a pint and a talk, and we did that, had a chat. And uh, I said to Arthur at that time, what is it you do then? He said, oh, I'm next door at Team Motors. So I said, oh, what are you working on? And this is the first time I heard the expression, well, if I told you that, I'd have to kill you. <laughs> so <laughs> fair enough, I won't ask anymore. And, uh, that was it. We had a pint and uh, went out to separate ways. Um, anyway, about, I don't know how long, probably about three or four days, actually, I can't remember the exact time. Um, Arthur came into my workshop, who I knew by now, and said, have you got a minute? So I said, yeah, yeah, what for? You know, this guy had helped me out in the big time. So I thought, yeah, I've got time for him. So he said, follow me. So we went through this one-way door. And this one-way door was Team Lotus. That meant anybody from there could come out, but nobody could go in. It said on it, Team Lotus, no entry, you know. Anyway, I went in, and um, he introduced me to Dick Scammell, who, of course, was chief mechanic at that time of the Indy team. And Dick said to me, ah, right, he said, uh, can you make me something? I wanted to try it. Yeah, so I said, okay, what do you want? And he gave me a drawing of a bracket. And he said, can you make that? So I said, yeah, sure, that's not a problem. Well, I've been doing these little drawings of stuff, um, at developments next door. You know, we built the chassis and we built all the bits that went into it. So this was a piece of cake, you know. So I said, oh, <clears throat> can I do it next door? Because I've got all my kit there. He said, yeah, no problem, off you go. So I did, it was only a teardrop bracket with a hole in it. It was quite simple, really. Anyway, I took it back after I'd done it, and it looked immaculate. You know, I'd done the best job ever of this. But I'm thinking to myself, I'm getting some weekend work out of this. They want brackets making do this. <laughs> so anyway, I went in, I gave it to Dick, and he looked at it and said, oh, okay, threw it on the bench. And I thought it demanded more praise than that. But anyway, that's what I got. And then uh, he got another piece of material, which was very nice. And he said, right, he said, uh, can you uh, can you uh, can you do uh, brazing? Not brazing. Can you do um, oh, what do they call it? Nickel nickel bronzing. Right. You do nickel okay. bronzing. Right. So I said, oh, I think so. So he said, well, have a go at that. So I did it, and it looked like a really bad braze because I don't know if you know, but nickel bronzing is really a skill, you know, yeah. to get yeah. the temperature right. Yeah. Anyway. He looked at that and he said, well, that's crap. He said, but we can teach you that. That's all right. Don't worry about that. And I thought, oh, okay. Yeah, there we go. And um, the next thing I knew, uh, he said, when can you start? So I thought, oh, um, uh, and that just threw me into a bit of a quandary, really, because I didn't, uh, the question didn't seem quite right somehow, you know. I thought he'd say, I want these made by the weekend or something. Yeah, but not at all. He said, when can you start? So, so this said, is a job interview. Well, yeah, it was a job interview. I had no idea. How could be so naive, actually? I mean, Arthur should have said, you know. But anyway, upshot of it was. Uh, next thing I knew, he said, uh, Dick said, well, he said, when can you start? So I said, well, um, I'll get it done today, if you like. He said, well, start tomorrow. Uh, and I said, oh, okay. Um, I suddenly realised that's what I'd done. I'd enrolled myself. And he said, um, I said to Dick, I said, well, look, next door, I have no idea that I'm even in here, you know. Don't worry about that. 
I can take care of that. And off we off he went. Off I went. I went home. And then the next day, I started a team Lotus. But so, the thing so was, was, when, when was this? When was this? Uh, this was 90, end of 1967. Okay. But the funny thing was that it hadn't been long before that we'd had a memo around to all departments. Uh, the inter-department inter poaching of staff was truly forbidden because they had, they had guys pinched from other departments, you see, up till then. And so they decided that that wasn't good. That was, you know, sowing a lot of dissent in the system. Yeah, sure. uh, and because not only that, what they wanted had come up from London and they hadn't actually been able to recruit locally other than the production line. Right. So there was a yeah. guy with me um, whose name I should have written down before I got in here because he was, uh, he was a good friend of mine and he, he actually ended up, he was working on the Europa mainly and he ended up as, uh, as a director of Lotus Cars. Oh, so wow. he, there was a way of getting on. Roger Becker yeah. was his name. Okay. Roger Becker was an interesting guy because he did a lot of the driving in the James Bond film. You remember the, the, the car that went underwater? Yeah, well, sure. he did a lot of the stunt driving for that. Right. He was he was actually in uh, he was on the film set. He went over to look after the car, and um, they weren't too happy with the stunt driver they'd got, although they hadn't said anything. And they said to Roger, "Can you nip down and fetch the car? We want it up here at the top of the hill and get a move on because we got the cameras. You know, we want to get going while well, the light's yeah. good. Always the light, isn't it?" So Roger jumped in the car and drove it like you drive a Lotus. <laughs> and when he arrived, they said, we like that. You're doing the driving. <laughs> and that was it. He got the job. He did a lot of the stunt driving and stuff like that. Excellent. Classic guy. He was a classic guy. Anyway, um, so so where was I? I? So this, so yes. So the next thing I knew, I was, I was working on the, uh, my first Lotus car, which was the 56. Oh, which right. was the four-wheel drive gas turbine. Yeah. So talk about in at the deep end. Yeah, I had no idea what I was letting myself in for. That was a very interesting car because we broke a lot of these things. But um, what had happened is STP had, had gone into four-wheel drive. Gramatelli, Andy Gramatelli had done this. Uh, with our, no, who was it driving? Uh, Parnelli Jones drove his, uh, and that was called the Fat Pig because what they did is they put the turbine on the inside of the car and driver on the outside, you know, getting the weight in the middle as you do. And, um, yeah, that, that, that unfortunately, a bearing went and uh, the car failed to finish the race, which is, you know, like they always say, a $7 bearing failed and that was it. Anyway, when you consider how much it cost. Anyway, we were developing these cars and as was longitudinal with the, with the turbine behind the driver and immediately in front of that, was the four-wheel drive system, which came from Ferguson. For, uh, and it was that was a Morse chain, which came off. What you'd got, basically, is you if you look at the inside of a gas turbine, you've got a row of compressor blades, which sort of compress the air, then set light to it, and it comes out. So what they've done now, instead of using the thrust to drive the car forward, they put the thrust through another set of blades that was attached to a gearbox. Oh, so wow. drove the gearbox. So there was no clutch in between. So that's why it was full on all the time, mm -hmm. um, So which was a bit of a disadvantage. But anyway, the upshot of that was that um, we now got four-wheel drive. That went down. There was a ZF supplied diffs uh, at the front and the rear, 
and we came off the Ferguson unit and we had a trans, uh, had a drive shaft on the left-hand side, if I remember, driving the front wheels and the rear wheels with a 60-40 split. It was uh, 60% of the front, 40% of the rear. So um, when he started, it was the end of 67. Yeah. So the car had to, had to be ready for Indy 68. Yes, that was the so idea. He had about four months on it, maybe uh, less than that, when you started. Less than that, yes. There was a, there was quite a bit. The tubs were done, or, or, or not all the tubs were done, but most of the tubs. That they were starting. The um, the turbine arrived and got bolted in. And it was interesting. It picked up. It was only held in three positions: two at the front and one in the middle uh, at the back. Uh, and that was in a, a long slot, which must have been in old money. It was about three inches long. This slot, uh, because the engine grew that much as it got hot, so the rear the rear was getting longer. Wow. <laughs> no, that. Yeah. So, listen, who was on the indie team then with you? Obviously, Dick Scammell. Uh, yes, there was Dick Scammell, uh, Arthur Birchall, uh, Huey Absalom. Uh, I, I'm fairly sure Chalky. Uh, yes, uh, it was Chalky. Chalky may have been on F1 at that time, actually, and came no, over. I, think, I actually think you're right. I think he, Chalky was on the indie team. Yeah. Point. Oh, yeah. okay. So, um, and uh, who else was there? Big Smithy, Ray Smith. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's terrible, this. I should know all these guys. I should But he, wasn't, but he wasn't a big team, though, was he? No, like, no, no, no. <laughs> two cars, obviously, as well. There wasn't a spare, was there? Yes. There was? Cars. Yeah, we had three cars. Oh, uh, right. one, was built, one was built as a spare. Um, we, uh yes. Um, the, when, the, the first car was built and then it went off to Trenton, New Jersey and Arthur went and Jim Clark drove it round there to test it and shake out and see what, what wanted doing. And then came back and uh, they came back with a job list bearing in mind this car hadn't been built yet the next car hadn't been built yet. We were already changing it, you know, from the drawings we were already doing things uh, that would make it different. So yeah, so the car was built uh, we did and then it comes, unfortunately, cut a long story short, of course, Jim got killed, unfortunately. And uh, so, therefore, we then went off to um, America with the turbine. And uh, uh, Jim Jim Clark was replaced by Yock and Rint. Uh, we had, uh, well, we had Mike Spence, actually, to be honest. We had Mike Spence uh, and Graham Hill were the, were the lead drivers. Uh, Mike was really quick. Graham spent a lot of time... Graham Hill was one of these guys who would spend a lot of time getting the car the way he wanted it. And a lot of this evolved around his seat. <laughs> so he put. So we spent a lot of time on the seat. The minute you got it right, Graham was off. That was it then. He was away. He started putting in really spectacular times. But until then, you thought to yourself, what's this? This is a fitting for a bloody seat, not setting up a racing car. You know, it's one of Anyway... Yeah. But that's how Graham yeah, was. The story of him bringing notebooks from like the year before to a Grand Prix and told you know, we used these gears last year. Can we try them now? That sort of stuff. All the time with Graham. Yes, I'm not at all surprised, actually. Because we were lucky now because we'd no experience with the turbine, so we couldn't change much at all. But in actual fact, there were there were two gears in that in that in that chain case. That it was it was a three inch Morse chain that drove from the back of the turbine gearbox into the four wheel drive unit, and the the um, there were two gears. 
there was a big one up there and a small one down there and you could swap them around and that was it really that was all you got so so we did that but that that was a funny story as well because what happened is we took the car into the garage that night to change the gears and Derek Gardner who's the guy who did the Tyrrell he was uh, he was the guy who worked Ferguson at the time and he came along and he said oh well you know I'm going to do these gears so I want everybody out so we put the car there took out all the relevant bits took the body took the body off and then we we all went off that night and left Derek to it we came back in the morning and what Derek had done is he had undone a week's work on Graham's seat because he just took the hump out and lobbed it in the corner, not realising that everything had to be in exactly the right spot. Anyway, the next day we arrived, Graham turned up, and Arthur said to me, ah, he said, I think, because I was with Arthur Birchie on that car, the number two, and um, <laughs> Arthur said to me, I think you should go out of the garage. So I said, what's wrong with that? No, no, he said, just go out, will you? So I went outside, because Arthur had been working with Graham, so he knew Graham. Graham Hill came in, and I'm not kidding you, you could hear that halfway down the pit lane. Graham, his call, he was absolutely ballistic over this seat because it had all been undone. Graham, uh, he'd thrown it all in the corner. Anyway, uh, we changed all the gears around. After a lot of fuss, we got the seat back where he liked it, and we went out and we did more testing because this was a run-up. You know, you got your the carburation day and all the rest of it uh, running up to Indy. And Graham was quick. Graham was very, very quick. Um, and Mike, Mike Spence was good. Mike Spence was really quick. He was the quickest. Anyway, the upshot is, as you know, probably, Mike Spence hit the wall and got killed. And the reason for that was he, and now this is always uh, always bothered me, really, STP took the car apart, and they had this sort of 88-year-old bloke. They were giving the, the credit for designing the suspension and everything, because STP were like that, and they stole all your ideas and, everything, and credited everybody else. Anyway, the upshot of it was that, um, this old boy had been interfering with the car. Mike Spence, they had problem getting up to speed. They had this, um, they had, what was the name of the guy they had? Uh, Bruce, a guy called Bruce Walkup was one of their drivers. That didn't work. But they tried a couple of drivers and they weren't getting anywhere. And they rather, they so they said, let's have Mike in the car. We want to know that it's not the car that's wrong, you know? So anyway, Mike got in the car. He did a few laps. Unfortunately, he hit the wall. Uh, the wheel came off. The steering rack was bolted to the top of the monocoque above the driver's legs and everything. So what happened was the suspension broke, but the wheel remained attached to the steering. And it ran through and it hit him in the head. If they had a halo in those days, he'd be here now, unfortunately. That's 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 the way it goes, isn't it? But uh, so unfortunately, poor old Mike, he got killed. A bit later on, we got the introduction. I went in, funnily enough, <clears throat> this was a real thing, because remember, Jim Clark had only just been killed himself. So we were facing, the old man was facing a real black hole. He, he sort of got himself together. We, I mean, it was all, going, Lotus was going to be folded. I mean, it really got to the point where, they were saying, I'm going to pull the plug on this. And we'd got, he'd got so many commitments <clears throat> with STP and other people, Firestone and, you know, that there was, he, had, he almost had no option. He had to keep going. So he did keep going, fortunately. 
and um, we, we ended up at Indy. We lost another driver. This made things even worse, really. And then um, that really was shaky. That was really shaky. But we were there. So, you know, you couldn't just pack up your toys and go home. So a bit later on, we got Art Pollard. Now, Art Pollard, that was interesting. So I went down to the garage in the morning. I was think I was first there, uh, Gasoline Alley, you know, as it is. And I got to the garage, and there's this guy leaning against the, <laughs> the door of the garage. So I said, oh, uh, hello, can I help you at all? So he said, uh, oh, he said, well, uh, he said, I was going to have a word with Mr. Chapman about driving his car. So I thought, oh, yeah, here we go. Another optimist. So I said, oh, OK, right, all right, well, don't worry about it. Just wait there. He'll be in eventually. You know, and I treated this guy like a, a local fence idiot. You know, we had a load of them hanging on the fence around the side of the garage. Yeah. So uh, um, anyway, a bit later on, of course, he, the old man came in. Oh, it's up. Oh, yeah, big deal. I'd never heard of him, actually. That was my fault, really. But of course, he was a well-established indie driver by then. And, uh, of course, I felt extremely bad about that. Art Pollard was a classic. He was a classic. He said, you don't want to eat this stuff that they serve at Indy. I'll get the coffee and donuts this morning. And he'd go out and he did that all the time. He went out every morning, came back at 10 o'clock, coffee and donuts for all the guys, and um, we all put on at least a stone, you know. But anyway, <laughs> he was great. I mean, he got in the car. And I mean, I forget where he qualified it, right? It wasn't on the front row, but it wasn't far off. And he'd never seen it before. And he got very a small amount of time in it before he qualified. Uh, obviously, he was an IndyCar driver. You've got to know the circuit. I mean, it sounds silly. Really. It's an oval with four corners, but they're all different. You can ask a bloke like Gretti and he'll tell you. There's so many different ways you can do these corners, you know. But anyway, um, that was it, really. We did uh, 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 qualify the car. And uh, we set off, and unfortunately, Graham went off to Monaco, which he did quite well at. Uh, <laughs> and then uh, he came back, and by then, of course, um, the STP had got their man on pole. I can't for the life of me think of his name, and I should have written it down because I, I have these lapses, I'm afraid. Uh, anyway, he done. He was good. He was a good driver, without a doubt. And he put it on. And he put it on pole, and we came back, um, or Graham came back. And then we went into the race. And uh, during the race, unfortunately, we had various bits and bobs that, that went wrong. Um, I was on the fueling with Arthur. Um, the car came in. Oh, I tell you. Now, this is interesting. Now, a, couple, a, a night or two before uh, the race, um, we'd all qualified. And I came in, I was in the garage working late, and I'd done something, and I felt absolutely shattered. So I sat down. Uh, got myself a Coke because there was a fridge full of stuff there. Got myself a Coke, sat down with my back to the wall. There were two sets of doors that went into the garage, and I sat between the two next to the fridge. I mean, I was in the corner, really. There was no proper seating in there at all, so I just sat on the floor, and I was just trying to gather my wits, and the door opened. And in came Flame Out Fred, which was the guy that was sent over with the turbine from Canada. So, anyway, Flame Out started working on the back of the car. <clears throat> and I watched him for a bit. And then he did that. And then he went over and he worked on the back of the other car. And I said, hello, Fred, what are you up to? And he jumped because he obviously didn't know I was there. <laughs> so, uh, oh, he said, Dougie, he said, that. oh, he said, that. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I said, well, what are you doing? He said, I'm just ensuring that they're very reliable. 
Uh, okay. That, that was STP speak for we're turning your power down. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Had I realised, I'd have said, oh, show me what you do. And I'd have done it back the other way. But, you exactly. know, he probably wouldn't have said anything. He would have probably done it happen. And I'll tell you why. Because either Andy Granatelli or one of those guys had put pressure on him to come and turn our power down. And that's what yeah. he did. And STP yeah. were like that. They didn't play a clean game at all, you know. Yeah. Anyway, uh, Graham still drove a very good race, considering. Yeah. But what happened in front is part of the front suspension let go and uh, the car uh, hit the wall and we retired it. Yeah. Um, interestingly enough, I don't know how it happened, but the nose cone off the car somehow got into the crowd. And I remember standing there watching it go up because you got, I think ah. it's like 250,000 people in the main grandstand there. And this nose over people's heads disappeared up and over the top and down the other side. It went that one. <laughs> Someone's got it on the wall somewhere. Sure. I've just thought of someone else who was on the team. Uh, would it have been Jim Pickles? Yeah, Jim Pickles. And also um, uh, a guy I just saw the other day <laughs> when we had a bit of a reunion. <laughs> there was Joe Nice himself. Um, oh, Willie Koo. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Willie Koo. Yeah. I think, yes, Joe Ninety. Yeah. So we had uh, Derek, Derek, yeah, well, he's just gone back to um, Taiwan, which is where he said he was going back. He actually couldn't get back at once. He came over here. That's why we had a reunion. He came over and couldn't get back. So we had a bit of a reunion while he was here. And then, I think, it, was it you or Beaky said it was the first time you'd seen each other in 50-odd years? Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, 90, that was it from that, that day, you know, from there. Well, we did the 72. We did work on the 72 together. Um, so, but... so, listen, so, listen, after um, Indy 68, yeah, you came back. What did you do after that? We came back. I got put on Formula 3. Uh, what they ah. did, they kind of dispersed the team. You know, uh, we had all sorts of stuff going on. When I joined Team Lotus, uh, they were the biggest, probably the biggest racing team in the world at that time. We were doing F1, F2, F3. We were doing sports cars. And we were also, um, what else was he doing? And Indy. So, I mean, there were six six operations, yeah. five operations there, all under and one even, roof. And even saloon cars with the Cortinas and stuff. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah I forgot about that. There was the 47, yeah. there was the yeah. Cortina. Yeah, yeah. So there was a hell of a lot going on. So what would happen is the IndyCar team would be dispersed into the into the rest of the factory doing different things. And I got put on Formula 3 with uh, Dougie Bridge and John Miles driving, which was my first. And we ran the 41X, which was a, the, the 41, which was a standard production, Lotus production Formula 3 car. But the X, it was made longer because uh, he was so tall. Uh, John Miles was taller than most people, so they made it only an inch or two. We made it longer, and that was his car. So we we ran that. We went into it was at that time. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm pretty sure that was the way it went. And Dougie Bridge and I ran that, which was really nice. Dougie Bridge is a terrific bloke. He'd done a lot of money, you know. Uh, he'd been with Lotus a long time. I learned a lot off Dougie, and uh, it was very much just the two of us. So two of you in a drum. I'd suddenly gone from six down to two, you know. Uh, it was really quite good. So we saw out the rest of the year like that. 
And that was, I would have thought the F3 season would be quite busy, wouldn't it, Doug? The amount of races. We did a lot. We went to Europe quite a bit. Uh, We did different series. I think it was an, I think it was an oil sponsored series at that time. So probably Duckham's or one of those, I can't remember which team, which, well, might have been Shell, was sponsoring that. So everywhere we went, there was a lot of Shell promotion going on, stuff like that, although that didn't really interfere with us. We just sort of turned up and did our thing, you know. But we did reasonably well on that, reasonably well on that. John, I think, there was, John was very good in the 47, you know. I think that was because it was closed in. The minute he got to an open wheeler, he was less successful. Uh, I can only think that that was the difference. He was a, a very clever driver. He knew a lot about driving. He knew a lot about the circuits. He, he, he was a very good bloke, actually. He was a great guy to work with. I mean, <laughs> I did, um, I forget where we were, something like Silverstone, I think. And he came in and wanted a gear ratio change in the Formula 3 car. So I think, yeah, so I whipped the gears out. I changed the gear ratio, put it back in, but I got it back in the wrong way. So, so instead of having an H pattern, he had two U. <laughs> he had to come up and go. He said, "The minute I changed gear, I realised what you'd done." So I think he he'd come across this before. I think the first time he changed gear, he was too high. You know, he went from thir- he went from first to third in the box. And, uh, and then he changed back, and he realised what had happened. And he, he took that on, and he actually ran that car through practice with that gear change. To work. And I thought that was amazing, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. amazing. It, it so took hard. a bit of working out what I'd done after I'd done it. You know. Anyway, he came back in. After that, we changed the radio. But John always seemed to finish second. There were, there were other quite good drivers around at the time, you know, uh, you have to say, but he did, and I think it was just that, but it was always close. It was never miles behind. It was always okay. close. And the thing was, that what happened there as well, as well, Formula One had taken on, um, I've got to be careful with my dates now, Formula One had taken on sticky rubber. We okay. got first YB11s, which were the Firestone sticky rubber tyres. Right. And uh, this had just been introduced. And because the rears uh, of the Formula 3 car were the same size as the fronts on the Formula 1, yep. the old man talked Firestone into doing one set of rear sticky rubber for the Formula 3 car. Okay. Which was great until we got a puncture. <laughs> <laughs> um, we were very lucky. Goodyear repaired it for us, actually. Oh. Very kindly uh, stitched it up, which is what he did in those days. Anyway, the upshot of it was, um, that, that was the formula thing. John, I, I say, a terrific driver. And, of course, I met him again when we did a 72, when we went into uh, yeah, sure. that 72 season. The, um, what happened, actually, we, the, the following year, uh, we did, uh, in 1969, um, 1969, yeah, we did the, four, uh, the 64, which was oh, the four-wheel okay. drive. It was the same four-wheel drive, uh, but it wasn't the same system at all. We used uh, what was called a Foyt, which was an engine that Ford had sold to AJ Foyt. Oh, right. Uh, it was the current Indy engine they were using, the V8. Mm-hmm. That, that was the car that they'd used in the GT40. And this was for Indy only, I guess. Yes, but we, yeah, but there had been, it was the same engine they used in the GT40, but they'd now sleeved it down to the Indy size engine, which was right. 2.4 litre V8. Turbocharged. 
Yeah. Uh, producing 1,200 horsepower uh, on methanol and nitro. <laughs> it's ridiculous. <laughs> Oh, it's just amazing. That thing could spin the wheels like, all the way around the circuit. You know, it's just ridiculous. Anyway, uh, our car was four-wheel drive, so the idea was that we would make more use of the power that way. And uh, Andretti had been driving this engine. He knew it very well. So uh, we took the – anyway, the car once again was taken over, and it was run around Indy. The 64 was run around Indy, and uh, Mario was driving it. And, uh, yes, it was great. It, went, it, it came back. And, uh, and we then prepared the car. But having said that, we were in terrible trouble with that car. We were really a long way back for the manufacturing of it. And we were working all sorts of silly hours. You know, I mean, we were there till 11, 12, midnight, one o'clock. And then we were in at eight the next day. I mean, you scarcely yeah. had to go home or wash and come back again. You know? um, anyway, we did that. We got the car there. Yeah, chalky. Yeah, chalky, chalky. <laughs> Uh, <clears throat> when we got, we took the cars over unbuilt. We actually yes. finished them off in America. We we actually, yeah. I'm wondering actually when I'm saying that we took the car over and drove it. I don't think we did. I think I'm getting mixed up there. I think we took that to Snetterton and drove it round Snetterton. I know we did one of the Indy cars at Snetterton. I think that was probably it. Um, to just to check it out, shakedown, so to speak, you know. But shake. I mean, it wasn't finished. I mean, we, we had all the cars. We had what happened was all the air equipped, which was the piping we used, and a lot of stuff had to be of a certain specification or you weren't allowed to use it at Indy. And all the piping had to be air equipped. So we had to get air equipped from America because we didn't really have, we had our own equivalent, but they wouldn't accept that. So we, we had stuff flown over. The thing was, the aircraft was being flown over here at the same time as we were flying the bare chassis over there. So we got over there, and we I think we had the four corners on the cars, and that was about it. And everything else we had to do while we were there. So they needed plumbing. Oh, we might have had the engines in. But anyway, we needed to plumb them, and we had to do all the geometry and set them up. And this was one of the times that um, I remember we were working late, and uh, we got to the point where with this new four-wheel drive had this wonderful steering system that worked backwards. So we had steering rack on top of the monocoque again, but that or, yes, I'm pretty, it was there or it was just at the top of the footbox. But anyway, the arms came out of that um, in front of the top wishbone, but they went back to the steering links on the bottom of the, yeah, I'm just, it's all coming back now. The, on the bottom of the steering arms of the uprights, but so they, instead of using the front end that you would do, you use the rear because that was the only way we could get the steering lock. You couldn't okay. get the steering lock if the arms came straight out. Uh, what happened was we had two idler arms built into the front of the monocoque, idler, idler chassis arms. They were linked together, and then we had a, I don't know it was a left-hand drive, steering rack bolted to the top of the monocoque and then it picked up in the it, on one of these idler arms and moved the two idler arms the idler the idler stay with me the idler arms came back onto the steering link well uh, uh, to the uh, steering arms on the uprights now the problem was um to do bump steer 
on the cast, which the old man was crazy about, if you remember, you had to, you could raise and lower these steering box, the idler arms on the chassis, and you could raise and lower the links in the pickup on the steering arms. So yeah, it was infinitely variable virtually. And then of course, the length of the steering arm was important because it had to be a ratio that matched the length of the wishbones so that when they went up and down, they didn't change effective length. They all stayed the same length. That was the idea. Um, actually, I, you know, years later, you have ideas about these things. I mean, obviously, it, it goes into your mind. And one of the things I thought that we missed out on, uh, although I don't know if it ever occurred to the old man, but when you think about it, those steering arms, if you've got caster built into your front suspension, as, as all cars do, even though three or four degrees, um, as you turn the steering, the end of that steering arm rises and lowers as the thing casts, uh, as it turns, because it starts off in a low position. And because the kingpin uh, is, is, um, has got sort of four or five degrees caster in it, as it goes up, it raises and lowers that point as it goes across. Now, what we could have done is actually built into the idler arms um, two or three degrees of caster in there, and then they would have matched the steering arms. Too late now. <laughs> but that would have saved a lot of bump steer problems. Um, the other thing that came to me many years later, uh, the problem with the gas turbine was it was driving all the time. So the drivers had to just put the brakes on to go into the corners. They couldn't lift because if they did, it took about two or three seconds for the engine to spool up again to get your power. So, so um, but what we should have done I think, I don't know, I may be wrong, is put a waste gate on there so that as we came into the corner, we could have kept the foot on the turbine but wasted the gas instead of driving the gearbox, wasted it off, used the brake, switched it straight back on again as they do with a dump valve now. Once again, too late. But anyway, <laughs> um, the 76, um, uh, sorry, the 64, um, Andretti... That was for Mario, Graham Hill and Jochen Rin, wasn't it? Yes. Year? Now, the thing is that it was really it was really going very, very quick. It was very quick. Andretti said it was the quickest thing he'd ever driven around Indy. It was wonderful. He loved it. He lo absolutely loved it. Unfortunately, um, we crashed. And we crashed because the rear hub on the car, there were quite large hubs as well especially compared with a Formula One car of that period, because <clears throat> we had tremendous torque from this engine. The outright power wasn't as, as much, but the torque was phenomenal. And, and it came in very, very low, but it went out quite high. So instead of with the combustion engine, where the torque increases as the revs increase, with the turbine, it was the other way around. Because what you'd got is you've got maximum gas thrust through the turbine blades onto the gearbox. But as the thing got faster, the gearbox turbine blades were turning the same speed or they caught up the turbine. They were never the same speed, but they caught the turbine up. So the differential between the two, as the differential got closer, so the torque dropped. And so, so, so um, if you were to have a standing start, you'd never get near it because all four-wheel drives with maximum power. Now, I mean, for instance, you could never start the car off the line 
um, with maximum power. You had to go to, oh, I think we, we ran them up about 60% um, because it would have just smashed everything up. The power was so great. So you always started at 60% and then worked your way up from there. Um, going back to, to the uh, 64, um, the problem was that the rear hub, the machining of the hub, the design of the hub, had put a right angle where a bearing went onto the hub before the drive flange for the wheel. And this actually induced a fracture because it was at right angles, it induced a fracture. What should have happened is there should have been a large radius between the back of the flange and the bear and the and, and the bearing as it was pressed on. And there should have been a collar on there with the radius on the inside of the collar, but giving you the vertical bit. You needed that for the oil seal that stopped the bearing that kept the grease in the bearings. So you had to this this uh, surface, you know. Anyway, hindsight clear. Uh, Right-hand rear broke off the, uh, the Andretti lost the wheel. I got actually for the book, um, the uh, turbo, uh, the indie years written by Andrew Ferguson. I'd actually got the photographs from the local newspaper, which I'd picked up at the time, which gave staged photographs of the wheel coming off the turning, hitting the wall, and then the thing catching light. Uh, it was a big fire. But, you know, the funny thing is you don't actually see what's burning because the, the heat and the flames are transparent because the uh, methanol has got its own oxygen. So it doesn't need air. So you don't see any color. So what happens is at the, at the top of the flames, you suddenly see little sparkles and stuff like that. And what that is, is that's dust and that it's sucked up and it sets light to it as soon as it hits the air. So it up through the middle of the flame, and then as soon as it comes out the top, it starts sparkling, and, you, and then you realise you. This is why uh, when you'd have pit lane fires and drivers were on fire and nobody could see it because you couldn't see that they were actually on fire, um, which was not, not, not good for those things. Anyway, um, I remember when I went there, when I first went to Indy in 68, one of the guys uh, introduced me to a guy called Jim Herdebeest, Oh, Jim Herdebees, he's been doing this for years. You know, he's a legend, which he was. And I shook Jim Herdebees' hand, and it was like holding a bag of spanners because he'd no skin left on his hands at all from fires. He'd been burnt a couple of times, and he was, a, he was terrible. He was, his face was a mess. I mean, they'd done the best they could for him. You know. He was a very nice guy, actually, Jim Herdebees. He, he, in, in 1968, he ran a front-engine roadster. He was the last, I think it was the last of the front-engine roadsters to run. Uh, and I think he actually, uh, did he qualify it? I'm not sure. I think he came around the corner on turn four, hit the wall. It came into the middle of the circuit. And it was a bit like those clown cars you see at the circus. All the four wheels fell off it. And he got out and walked away. And that was it, you know. Um, but he, he, was, he was a hell of a character. He had uh, a couple of mallard ducks <laughs> around his garage all the time because his car was a mallard. So he had oh, these. Right. He had these right. Yeah, <laughs> it was really stupid. Yeah. Anyway, that was it, there was there was a lot of fun. There was a lot of fun at Indy amongst the guys. Yeah. So um, after Mario crashed, what happened then? Well, we were. They made a big thing of it because they had been trying to get rid of us for a long time the rest of the gear, the rest of the guys. And they don't, as I say, they don't play clean. 
Um, we'd had a load of stuff. They, 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 they looked at the car initially in scrutineering and they said, um, oh, you haven't got chrome molybdenum and chrome molly um, wishbones. We'd, we'd made them out of aviation steel, which is like, you know, absolutely true, spot on stuff, grain checked the whole bit. And um, we'd made them out of that. And they said, oh, no, we're not going to accept that. You have to get them made out of chrome molly. Well, we didn't have any chrome molly in this country. So STP flew a load of sheets of chrome molly back over to the factory. And the guys stayed up day and night making new wishbones, sent them all back. But they came back and they weren't heat treated. So they had to be heat treated, which is a process where you bring the whole thing up to one temperature drop it down and it takes all the stress out of the material where the weld has been done and you know and they've been burnt they've been bent and all that. now everything was great until we got them back from heat treating because we'd made a major major mistake there nobody had drilled a ventilation hole they were fabricated wishbones they were top half bottom half welded around the edges you know bushes welded into them it was a sealed unit and they blew up like balloons and there's nothing you could do. We hammering with a sledgehammer. These things would not go back anywhere. So we had to fit them as they were. And they do look a bit strange, but the end points were still the same. It's just that instead of being a flat section of about, in those days, probably three quarters of an inch, inch maybe, uh, they'd blow like three inches. <laughs> it was, uh, it was just, I mean, you've got, I don't know. They must still be around those wishbones because I think the car's still about. They rebuilt one, took it back, you know. But anyway, uh, so that was a bit of a strange thing. But we, we 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 tried to do everything. They were trying to get us out at every turn, every turn. Matter of fact, funny thing was going back again. I'll tell you, I dan- dan- danced back as a fool. Sorry. When we were running the gas turbines, the 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 all the other guys got together. The other drivers said, "Oh, we've got to get rid of these guys somehow." You know, we've got to get rid of these guys. So I said, "I oh, know. We'll we'll we won't test at the same time they test. So there'll be no nothing for the the crowds to see. So test days. So we thought, ah, okay. Well, I say we, you know, collectively. Um, they so the old man said, right, okay. Well, whatever happens, we'll always have a car out on the test track." And it took about two days for these guys to realise they weren't getting any testing in at all. <laughs> but you were. We were. <laughs> anyway, that, that got blown out the window. The next thing they said, they said, oh, they objected to the turbine. They said, well, the thing is, a turbine, a gas turbine at sea level is under a lot more stress because of the atmospheric pressure than it is when it's 36,000 feet in the air. So what we need is we need uh, to make sure we're uh, safe we need a scatter shield built around the compressor housing on the turbine. So they 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 insisted. So so we had to. So so USAC came to us and said, "I'm sorry about this. It's got to be done. You have to have a scatter shield around there, and it's got to be of something pretty substantial." And they quoted, I think, quarter of an inch thick um, steel. So anyway, STP rushed out and bought loads of. Um, titanium only a small fortune and uh, we were left to our own devices so so uh, the old man went out and got a load of boilerplate second right. rusty boilerplate and yep. we carved it up 
and we made we got some angle on and we made up these things and it was the crudest thing you ever saw and it bolted over because they thought that a, a compressor blade would come out go through the side of the car through the fuel tanks out the other side and hit a driver that's going past and as we pointed out, they wouldn't be going past anyway. But anyway, the upshot of it was we stuck we stuck to making this this compressor cover out of boilerplate, and it was that terrible checker plate stuff. It looked awful, you know. And we bolted this down, didn't even paint it, pushed the cars out. They looked at it and said, "Yes, we'll accept that." Now put it on the way bridge. So we put it on the way bridge, and it weighed the same. <laughs> and that was that. Suddenly they thought to themselves, "How have they done this?" Because you know, it passed scrutineering, it was weighed, it was spot on for weight, as the old man was very particular, spot on for weight, it was drained of fuel and everything, you know, and they put it back on with this huge lump of metal in the middle of it, and it doesn't weigh anymore. Now, what the hell's going on here? And, of course, STP had saved a few pounds by putting titanium in, but it was still a lot more heavy, because it hadn't been there before. You know, there was right. nothing there, of course. Now, yeah. all of a sudden, added extra. What they didn't know is when we constructed the monocoques originally they were so underweight that we had to line the bottom of the fuel tanks with lead flashing to get the thing up so we were using building material from houses lead flashing to get the weight up well all we did of course was take that out when we put this big lump of steel which was lovely because it was smack in the middle as soon as we put that in we took all the lead flashing out and the same weight you know they couldn't get over that they couldn't get over that but having said that, you know, it's interesting, really, because, uh, as I say, this scrutineering is quite particular. You have to jack the car up at the front, and the car has to be designed so the lowest point for the fuel is at the back, in the middle, so you drain it, so there's absolutely no fuel in it. They're weighed dry. So we'd passed all that. AJ Foyt pushed his car onto the scales, and they said, right, is it dry? Yes, it's dry. Under the nut at the back. Yeah, no fuel in it. Did it up again. Right. Weigh the car. Okay, you're all right. Off you go. He he jumps in the car and drives away. <laughs> so, hang on. This can't be right. You've just taken all the fuel out of it. So, they had a closer look. He got fuel everywhere. He got it in the roll hoop of the car. He got up. He got it in places we didn't know you could get fuel in. Because if you could do one less stop, you'd save yourself a bag of time, you know. And he pulled up for that. But AJ Foyt and his dad and all the rest that have been doing indie for so long, they had their own rules, a separate set of rules, you know. Goals. About that. Yeah. <laughs> but so, he did get caught. So uh, you didn't run at Indy in 69? No, 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 no. We worked horrific hours. It was probably... I don't know, there's a 72 as well, isn't there? We worked the longest hours I can remember at that point in time. And uh, we were all in, a, in a, a terrible state. We all went back to the hotels. What happened was we had to withdraw the cars eventually because we couldn't get stuff made. Every machine shop we went to couldn't do it, didn't have time. I'm sure there was a conspiracy out there to make sure we didn't run. Uh, the, the USAC made a huge thing of this damage. They took all sorts of photographs. you got guys walking back, holding stuff in the air, you know, making sure all the cameras could see it, all the press could see it. Now, they tried to, they, they did their best to get rid of us. Anyway, uh, which they did eventually, of course, because the old man wouldn't go back again after all that, you know. Um, anyway, the, yeah, we, we, so, yeah, we couldn't run the cars. So we withdrew the cars and uh, all the mechanics went to bed for a couple of days to catch up. And then we went back and cleared up 
Um, Ford owned the engines. They wanted the engines back. Uh, STP, in theory, owned the chassis, except they didn't pay for them. So that nearly bankrupted Lotus because spent the money. I mean, I, I don't know. When we did the turbines, they were a quarter of a million pounds each, the turbines. So what these... And those In 68. Yeah. Gosh. And those days, that would have run your F1 team for a year. You know, oh, no problem. You know, but uh, anyway, the upshot of it was we, we the same thing happened with these um, 64. And the old man had bankrolled the whole thing up till then. And we went back without any money because STP refused to pay for them. Yeah. And of course, the irony is as well that um, Mario jumped ship, got in another car and won his only Indy. Yeah, he did. He got in a Coyote Ford and, and won <laughs> Indy. Yeah. 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 That was ironic, wasn't it? Yeah. But, I mean, he was a, he was a, he was a fantastic bloke. I mean, I don't begrudge him that at all because he was a terrific driver. You know, he could drive anything. He was really, really good. <laughs> yeah. So again, uh, you come home and the team gets split up into doing all the other bits and pieces instead. Well, when we came back from that, that was disastrous, and Lotus had no money, absolutely no money. So a lot of guys had to go. So oh, really. We, yeah, there was a big weeding out, you know, and um, <clears throat> well, I say weeding out, that's cruel. There was a lot of guys there who had been with Lotus through thick and thin for a long time, lost their jobs. Now, why I kept mine, I don't know, because I'm not being modest. There were a lot of guys there that were a lot better than me, had a lot more experience than I did, but I kept my job. And the only reason I can think is because Dick Scowell had to do the hiring and firing. He was now chief of all the racing. And, um, and because he was the guy who persuaded me to come over from developments, uh, funny persuasion, told me. <laughs> but anyway, uh, because of that, I think he felt he, he, he owed me an obligation there and I kept my job. I was very lucky, very lucky. And, uh, and then we sort of, I can't remember what happened from then on. There was a lot of clearing up to do, <clears throat> a lot of sorting out. It was all a bit of a haze. Um, and then the old, then things got going again. I don't know whether maybe the um, gold leaf money had started to appear or something. I don't know. But things did change, and we started on the 72. It seems like it seems, you, what you've got to remember with, with Lotus is every project gets a number, and they're consecutive. So racing cars have got numbers, but they won't be consecutive because he did other things in between. I mean, at this time as well, he was involved in the boat business, if you remember. He was doing the, the uh, what were they? Oh, sunshine boats, I call them. But anyway, the upshot of those. And they, of course, turned into a nightmare. So a lot of, you know, a lot of time, he was distracted by that. He was, he was designing uh, aircraft stuff. He was also... He was involved in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an off-road car. He was designing suspensions and stuff for the barge off, you know, races and things. He fancied a crap. So there were all these things going on at the same time. And um, I'm afraid, um, yeah, and, and we were running out of money. We ran out of money, period. The gold leaf stuff came in. I mean, I don't know exact timing of that. You'd have to have Freddie Bushel or someone who he, I mean, Freddie's not, not with us, but I mean, Freddie would, was the only guy who could really put his finger on the time money moved from here, there and everywhere, you know. I mean, um, 
Like I say, there was only a lot of Lotus money was on, a, on an island that only came out of the water at low tide. <laughs> but anyway, the upshot of it was um, we got the money for the 72 from somewhere and we started doing the 72. So would that have been in 69, Doug, obviously, or late 69 sort of thing? I think, yeah, end of 69. Yeah, yeah that makes sense. <clears throat> because obviously with, you know, there was the other racing going on as well. There was the, the 47 and the uh, the F1 racing was still going on, you know. There were a lot of things happening. Uh, but the team actually shrunk. I mean, it did. It shrunk from all those I mentioned to start with, <clears throat> some of which I don't think, obviously the big sports cars have been stopped. We didn't, we weren't doing those. Um with 38s and something like that. Anyway, uh, what we've done is we've come down to one team, effectively, from all that lot, one team, you know. I was going to say, one of the people that uh, moved on at the end of 69 was Bob Dartmoor people. He did, yeah, he did, yeah. I think he didn't go to Brabham. I think he went to Brabham or McLaren. Oh, I think it was March to start with, with Marriott yeah, on yeah. the 701. Yeah, I had a bit of time. <laughs> anyway, the thing is that... Uh, yeah, so anyway, the upshot of it was we built the 72. And I remember getting the, the former, building the former, and I built the model for the wind tunnel. Um, the former was a 10-inch box uh, that was the length of the car. And then you had profiles cut that fit the thing every 10 inches. It was all done in 10s for some reason. And then, and then yeah, and then, because that was very confusing as well. What we'd done, once we'd got all that done, we then layered... Um, narrow strips of plywood on that, about an inch wide and probably about two mil, three mil thick. <clears throat> we layered those in strips over the top. Then went over that with Tetracell. And with that, we then got ourselves a mould and they made the top of the screen and the top of the bodywork off that and the nose, which were the fibreglass pieces. And the side pods were, were modelled out of fibreglass as well. So all that was sort of, all the, the initial moulding was done off that. And then the monocoques were built and uh, the chassis and we then transferred and then all the things. So everybody that was there was making little bits and pieces. The whole of the workshop was in, was doing fabrication. Whereas before you'd have guys racing and one thing like that, all that was sort of stopped and we were all doing fabrication. I think the F1 cars carried on for the rest of the season, but of course, obviously, you know, I wasn't on that side, so I didn't really take a lot of notice of what was going on to be honest. But so they finished their bit. Um, we fall back and regroup, and we're making these bits. The 72 came out. Uh, I'm jumping a bit here, but um, and then we had the nightmare of trying to get a 72 to work, which yeah. did, didn't work out of the box, unfortunately. <laughs> right. If anybody's seen the Peter War film, it's quite good, actually. It does explain exactly what happened and how badly yeah. it went wrong, you know. Um, we took it to Spain. We had trouble getting it through the border. We so had, now you're on the race team now? The F1 yes, race. we've got, got on to F1 by now. And um, yes, as I say, I was one of the lucky ones, kept on. Yeah. Uh, my analogy of today's racing and how we were is there were six of us for three cars, manufacture, transport, the whole bit. Now they have more than that on the left front wheel in a tyre change, in a wheel change. <laughs> they have really more, they have more than that in catering. Yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Oh, that's another thing, catering. What's catering? We, we only ate when we got a chance. I remember several times booking into a hotel, leaving me luggage, going to the circuit, going back to the hotel afterwards, picking up my luggage and flying home. Because the rest yeah. of the time we went to the circuit, we never seen a bed. That was it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
but uh, that's jumping ahead, really. But the 72 was a bit of a nightmare in as much as um, it didn't work. It didn't work. Yeah. Simple as that. Around the test track, and it had anti-squat and anti-dive, as you know, which was the big, you know, it had seven degrees of anti-squat and anti-dive. I still feel it would have worked had they gone to something like probably three degrees or two degrees even. I think it would have, it would have had an input without the bad influence it had on the chassis because it was a smaller angle, you know, a smaller angle. But anyway, when they decided that the anti-squat and anti-dive didn't work, they took it out, which meant changing all the front suspension. Well, as Peter War says in the film, you know, all that front suspension was as, as much as you get in a full-blown chassis of the old tubular. You know, I mean, there was pipes and bits and bobs. Anyway, it all had to be unriveted. The monocoque had to be unzipped. All that came out, completely new frame made, put back in. The geometry was changed. Everything was changed. And we, we did that. And, of course, the rear end was a bit different because it was on radius, long radius arms. I think we just knew, changed the pickup points. So that changed the angle of drive on the suspension. Right? Changed the pickup points. Um, although at that time... No, I tell you what, yeah, we were running a wishbone at the bottom of the rear suspension at that time, which was a fantastic piece of kit. What they did is they took the gearbox, took the back off the gearbox, machined that down, put an aluminium plate on there that was triangular, if you like, uh, like a pyramid shape, and the bottom end of that aluminium plate held the rear of the bottom wishbone and it all the came good at that point didn't it oh yes it all started to change then yeah yeah we took it out it, the car behaved itself uh we had one or two other little bits and bobs in between cooling was a problem at one time uh, and um yeah there were other bits and bobs as you can as you can imagine the other thing i remember is going to silverstone and testing in in like january or something like that, and it was freezing absolutely freezing we fired up the engines and they blew the scavenge pumps off, the pipes off, because the oil was so thick it couldn't, you know, and it just hydraulic and blew the pipes off. So we had to put all the pipes back on, yeah, in the freezing cold. And of course, then it wasn't like it is now. You know. uh, it was all done in the open, and, uh, and we when we got a bit of testing in on the seventy-two. <laughs> but I, I think I remember either John Miles or Peter War say uh, to me that. Um, for the 72, there was hardly any actual proper testing at all. No. Done at the circuit. No, we went straight to Spain. I mean, with, with the car, you know, not knowing. And, and when it came back from Spain, it said, it's terrible. You know, it's horrible. Well, anything, you know. Uh, and that was the first time we realised that we were going to have to strip the whole thing down and do it all again. And this was Jochen and John Miles, wasn't it? Yeah. 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 He was, uh, yeah. Once again, I think John Miles was good there. Well, John Miles, of course, came unstuck when it came to removing wings at Monza. You know, I mean, that was an honour. But Jochen uh, didn't like testing much, did he? Jochen? Jochen, no. No, he didn't like testing. He, he would duck out of that if he could. Uh, Graham, good. Graham, you know, Graham was up for it. He, he liked his driving and he got on with... Uh, Graham was tremendous, actually. Especially, uh, well, I mean, it's a story well told. And I won't go over it. But when when Jimmy got killed, I mean, if it wasn't for Graham, I'm pretty sure um, things would have been a hell of a lot worse than than they were. Not only, I mean, not only did he pull the team together uh, and and act as a beacon, you know, 
to the system, but he also won the world championship <laughs> as well. <laughs> so yeah. kind of, and for uh, a start, I think it was the first, wasn't it the first race after Jimmy's accident? Yeah. Was it you won in Spain, I think, um, to really bring the team back from the brink? Because Chapman yeah. wasn't even there, was he, at that point? And it was virtually all Graham's doing. Yeah, you're right. Graham stepped, he stepped into the breach without a doubt. He was, he, he was very, very good on that. And he was, he, was, he was a lot less demanding as well. That was an interesting point because Graham was a you know a high a high what do they call it a, high, a highly expensive driver in as much as what he wanted doing you know uh, he wanted loads doing I remember he eventually left loads this is jumping a bit he went to and was run by a guy called Tony Cleverly and um, what happened is that um, Graham went out in in the forty nine the the Rob Walker had bought for him that's right, did that's a few right. laps. Came in, gave Tony Cleverly a, a, a list about eight feet long, you know, as he would do at Lotus. And Tony said, "Right, we'll check the oil level. We're off to the hotel now. I don't know what you're doing." And that was it. You know, that was Graham's job list. They no, wouldn't do it. He said, "No, no, no, well, don't be silly." You know. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> but I mean, he was he Tony Cleverly is a nice bloke. I like Tony. He was a funny bloke. And he had a guy working with him, Stan. I can't. I don't remember Stan's surname. But he was good as well. And they were real characters, I have to say. I mean, people keep on about their real characters, you know, uh, and it's a, it's a well-used word. But and I mean, and sometimes were. people will people think, as, as Rob Walker's, obviously it was the very last, wasn't it, privateer team, I would, I would say. But yes. sometimes people would say that they're not as professional as a works team and all that, but they were. They had oh, to be. yes. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean... You know, I, and all that. They were good. I mean, we did keep them up to speed. On, on the trouble is they had a 49 at that time and we were on 72 so very difficult to do anything to help you know um but rob walker was a very nice bro i mean he was a gentleman he was a true gentleman i met him i remember the first time i think it was in spain funnily enough on the first race and we got the truck there and i couldn't quite back it into where it needed to go and tyrrell's was were on one side and i said to ken tyrrell um Oh, sorry, I've swapped from Walker to Tyrrell. Um, Tyrrell was another very nice... <laughs> but I, I did say to Ken Tyrrell, do you mind moving your truck? Sure, I'll do that. And he got the bloke to move the truck for me. I mean, that was just amazing. You know, I thought, it was, oh, crikey, I've only asked him, you know, and he's done it straight away. But he, he was another gentleman. He was real, really good. So I, I yeah. like him. He was yeah. very good. Yeah. But Rick Walker, so- yeah. When it came to it, I mean, he was telling me um, that his last Rolls Royce wasn't as good as the other one he had because the, the radiator wouldn't cool. And when they were away in, in, I don't know where it was, some foreign climbs, it started to overheat a bit. <laughs> well, you say that, it, it, his um, occupation on his passport was listed as gentleman, wasn't it? Literally. Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. he was. I mean, that was that was it. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, he, he, he knew his stuff all right. And actually, it's interesting because... Um, I just watched a program the uh, the other day on um, uh, what's the name of that racetrack? Um, the oldest racetrack with the bank circuit, Brooklyn's. I watched a, a thing on Brooklyn's, and they got one of Rob Walker's cars there that he drove, and they did a service and built it up, and his son drove it. And I thought that was really really good. I didn't know anything about that side of him at all. You, know, you don't, you don't. You, I mean, you don't really know the history of these drivers and stuff because they don't like sit down with you and have long talks, you know, that you, know, you do with the rest no, of the guys. Sure. Although, having said that, I must admit, the last time I remember a team talk where we were all together was probably, it was Monaco, I think, where we went into a cafe. I think I told you about this one, 
where we went into a restaurant and um, we were having trouble with a 72 and the old man got his pen out and started drawing on the tablecloth all the suspension of the 72 and what they were trying to achieve, the shape of the tub, the aerodynamics, the change in wing attitude. And, all that. and he drew it all on this tablecloth. And the, the woman that owned this, this restaurant went ballistic when she saw what he'd done. And uh, unfortunately, we didn't bring that back. I should have brought that back. It would have been worth a fortune by now. Wouldn't it would. It? Put it in a frame and stuff on the wall. Oh, that's right. That's right. Doug, we're going to have to wrap it up. We've gone on for a little bit longer than oh, what we thought. It's, it's yeah. really good. Yeah, it's, I've really enjoyed this. It's, this was nice. We might actually chop it into two pieces. We'll see later on, sort of thing. But uh, thanks ever so much for giving us your time. That was really uh, interesting. <laughs> I love I'm, glad you, I'm glad you enjoyed it. Oh, absolutely. Talk for England. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. All right. Thanks, Doug. We'll finish thanks, there. Cheers. Cheers, chat. Bye. Cheers. Bye-bye.